0: I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzone. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzone a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner in Kansas City, and joining me today is John Reuter, who has been on this show before. He is a Strong Towns board member and former council member of Sandpoint, Idaho. So, John, glad to have you back. Welcome.
1: It is a pleasure to be back, and especially a pleasure to be back with you.
0: Well, it's always good to have you on this show. I feel like it's been a little while since we've last chatted. And so I'm excited uh, that we'll be able to have a conversation about infrastructure as you are somebody who has been an elected representative before. So hoping you can have a provide a little bit of insight on some of these topics.
1: I'm hopeful and I've been obsessively watching this uh, the infrastructure debate and as this bill come together. And so it's exciting to me to get to talk about it and uh, what it might mean and how we can really make sure that that we minimize the downsides and increase the upsides in terms of how this was put together.
0: Well, maybe you can educate me a little bit then because I feel like I've been somewhat paying attention to it, but also, you know, it, it goes through so many different Iterations that you kind of lose track. So, preparing for this actually helped to educate me on basically how everything breaks down. And the article that we're referencing today was published in the New York Times by Zolan Cano Youngs and Madeline No. It is called Racial Equity and Infrastructure A U.S. Goal Is Left to the States. So, you know, the moment that everyone has been waiting for has finally arrived. The infrastructure bill, $1 trillion infrastructure bill, is being signed into law. This delivers $550 billion in new federal investments over the next five years. And it includes one $110 $110 billion in new spending for highways, bridges, and roads. It also includes $105 billion for transit and rail investments and $65 billion for broadband upgrades. Um, you know, there's so many other things that are covered in this bill. John, you probably know more than I do everything that's in it, but you know, it includes everything from investments in Airports and ports to environmental remediation. So, as you might expect, the original aspirations of the bill, from the perspective of a lot of people, were not necessarily met as the legislation required really consensus from all ends of the political compass. According to the New York Times, critics of the bill are not only concerned with the particulars of what is funded, but also how the funding will be administered. So the decision for how half the money is spent basically falls on the states, meaning that states that are not necessarily aligned with what the federal government envisions for infrastructure spending and from the New York Times perspective, specifically from this racial equity perspective, um, could neglect these kinds of prospective projects that would remediate the negative impacts of past infrastructure projects and potentially invest in projects that make matters worse. So the big example is that in the 1950s and 60s, state and local officials often used highway investments to steer Uh, infrastructure through Black communities, isolating them from adjacent neighborhoods and hurting the families economically. The president's administration has said that it wants to repair the damage from these kinds of past projects and take a different approach to infrastructure spending. So, of course, the states and cities that are actually administering the funds may have all kinds of other varying priorities that are not aligned with this kind of vision. And it seems likely that the approach to highway spending in general is going to be quite conventional. So I know Strong Towns has had plenty of healthy skepticism as well about the infrastructure bill and its promises. Can you talk a little bit about kind of this issue of how money is ultimately administered and how that works and why that matters. This is something that I hadn't really thought about very deeply before. And I'm curious what your sense on that is.
1: Yeah. So most of the money is going to go out through existing systems, right, of how money is distributed out to states. So there's a a revolving clean water fund. There's the Highway Safety Improvement Program, right? And these are programs that already exist, and the channels of how you distribute those monies are already well-established. And so that money will just go out to states with pretty broad discretion for states on how they want to actually spend that money. What that means in the case of those funds, right, is the decisions that state policymakers in coordination um, to varying degrees with local decision makers what they decide to do right they have a lot of latitude and so they could do things that turn this bill into a better success in terms of making our communities stronger or they could do things that really uh weaken our communities and make them less financially resilient there's a lot of flexibility there for states as there has been historically how much do you do repair work versus how much do you expand highways right and from a strong town's uh, point of view we'd say more of it ought to go to repair than to uh than to expansion, if any of it ought to go to expansion at all at this point. So those are the kind of core questions there. In addition to that, there's going to be over $120 billion, um, approximately. There's some there's some ways to go that it's going to be actually under, the, uh, under decision-making for the federal government. And a lot of those programs, some will exist, but a lot of those programs actually are going to have to go through a rulemaking process as the federal government actually figures out how to put those programs together what the requirements going to be, and how what, what states and local jurisdictions will do to actually apply for, and then they'll determine how to distribute that money outward out of that. And specifically, as they create those rules, one of the things that they're doing that's new is they're using this new Justice 40 standard, which is the idea that 40% of those monies will go to our most vulnerable communities, communities of color, to communities that have less wealth, right, um, to lower income communities. Uh, that 40% of those funds at least will be distributed in that way. And that's really a new rule that's part of the Biden administration. So, uh, hypothetically, those funds will actually help to uh, to relieve and to help build stronger infrastructure in the communities that need it most. Now, that said, there's some complexities, because one of the things we know at Strong Towns is that more infrastructure money does not necessarily lead uh, to long-term prosperity. So it's going to be really key what the rules are around that, how those work, um, and how that money is distributed.
0: Yeah, when I first read this article, I felt kind of a lot of confusion around what the better approach is regarding how funds are ultimately administered, if any, because it seems that the issue here being expressed by the New York Times is that the feds don't have a lot of control over what projects get funding for this large portion of of the overall bill. And, you know, there's concern with whether the administration from the state or local authorities basically align with this kind of federal vision, and how they would like to see things doled out. And while I see what they're trying to say, I'm not sure what the opposite approach would be and and whether that would be any better and that infrastructure projects maybe would be like managed in a top-down way via the federal government. And I say that because it's pretty clear that The federal government, even if their intent is to do good, is not necessarily omnipotent to understanding what is needed at the local level. And to be fair, the New York Times doesn't explicitly advocate for this approach, but I am trying to understand what the alternative looks like. On this show, Chuck and I have discussed an even more localized approach to administering funds and you know even further removing the decision making from the federal level and being much more focused on local projects to me the core of the issue i guess isn't necessarily that it's federal versus state in terms of administering the funds but it's that we enable enormous transformative projects and infrastructure that have the capability to drastically harm people in the first place there's you know, definitely large projects that are very important that require a big lift. I think of like re- environmental remediation projects, for example. But there's also thousands of, you know, if not millions of smaller, more localized improvement projects that we could apply funding to that could actually improve people's lives, but they aren't necessarily these big, enormous. Moonshot projects, right? They're smaller, they're more localized. And, you know, the federal government isn't necessarily going to have the perspective that people have at the local level to administer funds in this way. But, like you mentioned, this is really, you know, we're pumping money into existing systems of administering funds. So, it, (laughs) you know, getting it to that kind of more localized approach is you know perhaps quite unlikely it's it's likely to be more top down and and you know the projects that that will ultimately come out of of the spending you know the concern is that they will be quite conventional
1: right and this is this is the trouble right it, it's sort of the catch 22 of the current the current place we've gotten to in our infrastructure crisis which is that generally speaking right the way that we do infrastructure building, the way that we the one that we approach infrastructure in this country, as Chuck writes about in in his new book, is actually counterproductive. It's actually harming our cities. It's actually making them less financially resilient over the long term um, by actually building more road miles that we can't afford to ma- maintain and that actually uh, create a built environment that will never support them. What what really is challenging when that becomes the conventional way of thinking, is that. If you just send a bunch of cash out into the world with no strings attached, if you just say, hey, state governments, use this money however you want to, Um, even, hey, cities, here's a blank check to do whatever you want, that further creating funding that has no connection to those financial realities, right, what it does is it lets people just continue to go on autopilot, to continue to approach things the way that they've been approaching them. And so I think that's one of the really challenging things, because what you want to do to get out of this is have more. Local-based solutions, solutions that are actually context-specific, situations that actually really give people more freedom to call the shots and figure out how to create a transportation system that's going to work for themselves in their context. And at the same time, if you just send folks money when they're so used to this conventional thinking and they're using these same old literal handbooks, right, then they're going to end up spending the money in ways that actually perpetuate a system that's not actually thought out, where they're not actually looking at the local context, but just following what's become the default approach. And and that's, re- that's really challenging, I think, in terms of figuring out how would you run a massive infrastructure program in a country where we're really not ready to be responsible
0: with that funding. I was uh, reading an old, somewhat old Strong Towns article um, that basically had these like three overarching priorities for infrastructure that it included in part of the local leaders toolkit, which I thought could be really good to bring up because I feel like it's it's a framework that is incredibly simple, yet very smart. I mean, it's the the first one is prioritizing maintenance over new capacity. And that's kind of, that, that's kind of a biggie, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's the no new roads approach. But the second one is, um, you know, focusing on below ground infrastructure over abo- above ground. And I think that that's something that we often don't think about, that there's all of this infrastructure that is below the dirt and it is something that we often aren't really paying that much attention to. We focus so much on highways and roads, but we also have all of these pipes that are aged Um, And are really important to, you know, include in some of our funding because it ultimately helps neighborhoods become more prosperous over time. Um, And then the third point is prioritizing neighborhoods that are over 75 years old. And I think that is another thing that, you know, whether you're at the federal level or the state level, that should be something that is, you know, in all communities, something that we focus on because that's likely where most of the deferred maintenance is going to be. And those are often the neighborhoods that are also the most fiscally productive on like a per acre standpoint. So those are the things that I think are, you know, outlining a very pragmatic fix it first kind of framework that we really need in our country and and local leaders as well as citizens could really clearly advocate for as projects are being considered over the next several years. And I especially like, you know, the pull away from talking just about highways and shifting, you know, towards not only local streets, but older infrastructure that we have below our feet.
1: Yes, I think that's, I think that's Really smart. I think some of this money, right, is explicitly for those those pipes. There's 15 billion for replacing lead pipes, right, inside of the bill. Um, a lot of the money, though, is is for surface transportation, and that's one of the challenges, right? Is that even if communities say, you know, we ought to use more of this money to actually fix water infrastructure, the money that's going to exist is going to be to build roads, right? But but as you point out, there are there's so much need in our communities that we could take all this money and put it into good projects there actually are enough good projects and projects that should happen in our communities that this money could be put to good use and actually make our communities wealthy. The key though, right, is not just funneling into some of these new new approaches, this this uh, suburban experiment style transportation. And and the article we're talking about actually brings up a, a really good example that we've been obsessed about at Strongtown um, in Shreveport, right, which is a, a community that Chuck's written about and visited multiple times. And they talk about how they're worried that the state government may use this new funding to actually drive a highway that they've been trying to do for years right through the middle of their community. And so this is a real example of how this infrastructure funding could actually damage the communities that guidelines like the Justice 40 are trying to actually help. Um, In fact, right, the Biden's original plan had $10 billion to remove highways, just like the one that's being uh, proposed here. And that that got cut down to, to only $1 billion even 10 billion was was wildly insufficient versus the number of these highways that we have going through and the cost of actually helping restore these communities. But it certainly is great to have a new program rather than than nothing in some ways. But if that spending there is totally overwhelmed by the amount of new highways going through communities, then you're going to see a net net negative there. And so it's really important, I think, that the communities are doing two things, right? Which is one, fighting bad projects and pushing back on the idea that we want to keep ramming these highways through communities and breaking them apart and, and destroying uh, uh, destroying the vibrancy that already exists there. And two, advocating for the projects where people actually need things because our needs actually are our real needs, not not these uh, projects that are going to make us poor in the long-term and destroy communities. The actual the projects are going to strengthen our communities and help people get around um, and help repair infrastructure that's in decay and make sure the bridge is safe to cross, right? Those needs easily supersede you know are, are greater than the amount of funding that's available
0: here you know it, it really strikes me that it's kind of time for people at the local level to be the adults in the room and not necessarily expect officials at the state or even local level to propose <laughs> projects or th- that are doing the right thing necessarily and To really for communities to have the tools to advocate for themselves, I think is something that's incredibly important. And, you know, not only pushing back on projects that are bad, but proposing or or not necessarily proposing, but proposing this kind of approach that is going to make their communities not only stronger, but also more viable over the long run. Something that I also wanted to bring up today that. I think is kind of important to touch on is this kind of disappointment from some some folks around lack of funding for all these more like socially oriented programs and projects that didn't get in the infrastructure bill. And I know there was a lot of like infighting around what is infrastructure and how is it defined? And, you know, people have all kinds of different priorities with what they think ought to be funded by, by this amount. Um, but to me, there is this kind of, critical connection between the implications of how money is spent today and whether we can afford the kinds of programs that people are interested in. And I think that that's something that we should be hyper-focused on because I've heard this distinction around ongoing funding versus project-based funding to separate out social programs from infrastructure projects, which makes some sense if you're thinking more conventionally about these things uh, you know, For example, a social program like, like support for daycare, they aren't one-time money flips. They require a sustainable funding model that ensures long-term viability. But what is ironic about this is that we have divorced this concept of long-term ongoing maintenance and fiscal liability from how we look at infrastructure projects. We picture these improvements as these big one-time lifts, um, particularly highway funding, when they are liabilities that require long-term attention. So in that vein, I I think that a fix-it first approach to our infrastructure, one that does not expand liabilities to create more long-term costs and obligations, could theoretically help our country move towards a healthier fiscal position that would enable us to do more, um, to support communities and support the kinds of programs that people are interested in. But that really requires our society to basically have a public sector that manages its assets and liabilities in a way that creates public wealth and fiscal strength. And I wish we had the discipline to get there. I don't know that we do or that that's something that, you know, there's a broad understanding around when it comes to kind of state level highway spending, for example. But, you know, I think think that's something that we ought to be hyper-focused on and that local communities could advocate for.
1: Well, I think that's a really astute insight. And I, I just want to make sure that I add, right, that those, those social spending and also a lot of climate pieces of the legislation are still very much alive in Congress. The House just passed the Build Back Better Act. It's now headed to the Senate. And some of those things may become law. And, and, and I'll just note, right, I think there can be a variety of different perspectives that are within still strong times thinking on whether that's a great bill or not such a great bill. Uh, I personally actually think that's a, a much stronger and actually a really good piece of legislation, whereas I think the infrastructure bill has some real challenges in it that we're talking about now. But I really want to focus on that. that all of you, talk, you spoke about there that I think is such a, a keen insight that this idea right that that the way we think about infrastructure as this one-time expense, which of course it never is, right? And it gets this idea of how we even account. I remember looking at city balance sheets and they'd have infrastructure listed as an asset, right? As though, the, as though it was like made us wealthier that we had this road. But the reality was a road is not an asset. A road is a liability. It's something you have to fix and repair and take care of. It. And it's useful to have. I think, you know, I, I don't imagine a city without roads or without sidewalks or without water infrastructure, right? But none of those things are actively like improving your balance sheet in a city. They're all all the actual costs that it takes to run a city. Uh, And I think that's one of the problems with how we think about infrastructure, uh, physical infrastructure in general, is that we're like, okay, we're going to go and we're going to build all this stuff. And then it's just going to be like more money out of the world. It's like we forget about the fact that every new highway lane that we build, every additional mile of road, um, or additional lane uh, is actually a, a liability to go back and take care of. Um, and we think about it as this one-time cost instead of like this generational, uh, multi-generational commitment. And, and I think that's just a really smart thing to think about because when we talk about some of these social spending, right, we think about it as this multi-generational commitment, and how it's going to stay with us. And I think if we thought about roads in the same way. Maybe we'd be a little bit more cautious before we added that extra lane mile. Maybe a little bit more cautious before we, we built more than we could afford. Um, if we understood we weren't just passing on a gift, but also a, a liability to future generations, and need to think really hard about how are they going to pay for it. And that's one of the real challenges too that you see is that this infrastructure, uh, physical infrastructure programs often come with one-time funding sources. So you're not thinking about how are you going to pay for it over the long term, versus uh, social spending that often comes with long-term funding sources. So it's actually a source to go back to. To get that, to get that money year after year after year because it's being thought of in that way. And so it is interesting the difference in how we're thinking about the financial requirements to actually really actually truly pay for things between those two different types of programs. You know, it's really interesting, but also like really (laughs) challenging when it comes to infrastructure. Now, that said, if we did our infrastructure better, if we built in a way where it supported development of prosperity, if we were actually building roads that served as a system to support and bring up wealth and develop a traditional uh, pattern of development around them would actually create enough, uh, create enough, you know, activity to support and create the tax base that could then pay for those roads and repair them the next generation. Then that one time spending could actually make sense would actually be a true investment um, rather than just the creation of billions of dollars in new liabilities. And that's the, that's the test, right? That's the challenge that our states and local governments face right now, is making sure that they're actually building they're building a, a structure that's going to end up being an asset in terms of the development it creates around it rather than simply making them even more fiscally disrepair uh, in 30 years uh, with even more lay miles and even deeper into a uh, deeper into a, a place where they can't get out of.
0: Yeah and honestly like that's why I don't really get hung up on this weird argument around well that's not infrastructure and this is infrastructure because I just feel like we are so infatuated with roads and building more and kind of just assuming that it's a good investment and it leads to prosperity and that, you know, we don't really need to hold any of that spending accountable. And then we put kind of this higher level of scrutiny on other things. I just kind of find that to be very ironic and, you know, really irresponsible from a long-term perspective because, you know, the perspective really ought to be that every time we're adding a highway to a road, we are kind of signing up our children and grandchildren to foot the bill for that. And that's something that is not part of the conversation um, and it, it really ought to be. So I think we can leave it at that, John. Thank you so much for joining me. And before we get get finished here, it is time for The Down Zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we have been reading or watching or listening to, anything that has been going on in our lives. So John, I will, uh, I'll let you start. What have you been up to?
1: Well, as always, I'm having a very lively time with my dog, Franklin. I think you just heard interrupt in the background. Yes. There. <laughs> so I'm visiting my mother this week. She has these two cats that he, he very much thinks should become his friends, uh, so they are not so convinced. So he was just shouting out to them to say, hey, why don't we become friends? But what I would say about the whole thing is uh, what else I've been thinking about is I'm talking – I, I was talking to them, and they were asking, you know, what do you recommend right now? And what we recommended was Only Murders in the Building, this new uh, – this relatively new, maybe old now for many people, TV show about a podcast. And so when I'm not, you know, when I'm not going to join you on a podcast, I like nothing more than getting to uh, w- watch other people talking about making a podcast. But it's this fun murder mystery comedy with Steve Martin and yeah. others that I just think is just a blast. So Only Murders in the Building on Hulu. That's my, uh, that's my recommendation on the uh, Townsend and something I'm enjoying rewatching right now with my family.
0: That's awesome. I, I don't have something as happy to share today. I wish I did. <laughs> So I don't know if you know this, but I am originally from St. Louis um, and or the St. Louis Metro rather. And yesterday I learned, and this is kind of crazy that I didn't know about this, but I learned for the first time that there is like there is something called the Westlake landfill in the middle of St. Louis that is basically a huge, like radioactive waste dump. That has, you know, a bunch of uh, old nuclear materials in the ground, and so yesterday I, I kind of spent like half the day learning about this, and I was watching this um, documentary which is on YouTube that's called Atomic Homefront, and it basically talks about the communities that have been affected basically since World War II from um, these like you know this nuclear waste that has been dumped into the ground and has, you know, impacted all of the water and the creeks around it. And it's just really incredible to me. And it's, it's kind of this ongoing situation that I was not aware of. And it's, you know, this huge EPA super fund. but anyway, it's, it's something that, you know, as a St. Louisan, I never learned about and kind of shocked that it's something that I kind of wonder how many people actually know about it, because it seems like it's it's a really bad situation. So, so I kind of obsessed over it like all day yesterday.
1: <laughs> yeah, that seems really depressing. We should have done these in the opposite order, but also really it's important.
0: Ho- I also. know. <laughs> no, it's really important. It's really important. I should actually see if um, the infrastructure bill includes funding for that. I could imagine it would.
1: This is the thing. That I'll just say about the infrastructure bill in general is there's this, there's this old joke about these two women are sitting at a diner together and one of the women says to the other one, the food here is terrible. And the other woman says, and such small portions, right? And and that's my fear about this infrastructure bill is that, uh, is that it will allow us to spend money in ways that are really reckless and irresponsible as we have for generations, although I'm hopeful that people will do better. And also, there's not, not, not nearly enough resources to actually cover all the needs that our communities face. You know, we need, the, you know, I referenced that $15 billion for lead remediation, when we know that the total cost for the country is probably somewhere around $60 billion, right? And so that, I think, is one of the challenges here. Just leave us on that, on that <laughs> equally shiny note here. Um, but I'm hopeful. And I think that one of the things that's going to determine if the money gets to where it's needed most are what local people do. Um, and how local people advocate and what they fight for. And so I think that a lot of these problems can be fixed. And this money could be put to good use. And so much of it, the bulk of it, is going to actually go out to state governments to make decisions. And the rest of it is going to depend on what local communities decide to apply for, right? And how much Secretary Buttigieg and his colleagues in the administration are going to be able to do good with that money is going to depend on local governments making a case and showing good projects that that will actually improve and strengthen their communities. And so it really is on all of us now uh, to actually make sure that this infrastructure bill ends up being a positive for our country. Uh, We can can continue to question how it was put together and say, boy, it would have been nice if there were some more strictures here and it had been more fixed at first and it had been better uh, done. I think Transportation for America has some really great commentary on exactly what those improvements would look like and what a good transportation bill would look like. But at this point in the process, the key is really that we all do everything we can to make this be used well. And make sure that that uh, that those small portions get uh, used a little bit better to to make this be a, a better meal for our communities. I don't know if that metaphor plays out, but you know. absolutely,
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I for one would trade. Having any new highway roads in into the future for uh, making sure that nobody ever has to live next to a radioactive waste dump, so <laughs> that's an easy trade for me. So I would love for for that to be dealt with over you know any level of highway spending, and I'm sure the people who live in those places would agree. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, John. Um, I appreciate you always when you have the time to make to uh, get on this show. So appreciate that. And thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving break and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, John.